Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic and Father John Arnold. And today we have readings that are for the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And the readings are from 1 Kings, Paul's letter to the uh, Ephesians, and the Gospel of John. And the one thing I want to point out about all the readings is that there is this consistent worldview, the way the world really is. Think about it like this. We know that we live in a world that is an imminent world. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. You jump off the top of the building, you're going to go splat because gravity affects us. An imminent world, you can look at it as a closed world where it's only driven by material and naturalistic processes or you can take an open take on uh, imminence. And that is that there is something more than just the imminent world. It points to a transcendent world. But even if you believe in the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the reality is, just like the atheist, the agnostic, uh, the nun who is searching for maybe nothing, maybe something, who knows, or the devout Christian, we all live in the imminent world, but it's how do we understand it? In the Bible, especially these readings, what is present is the transcendent in the imminence. And so in 1 Kings, uh, Elijah is fleeing Jezebel who wants to kill him because Elijah has uh, basically slain all the, the priests of Baal. They believed that Baal was this storm god that caused things to rain. In short, they believed the imminent world had divine powers in it. But it was still just this world where fate ruled um, and there really wasn't going anyplace. Well, Elijah flees and what happens? An angel feeds him so he has the strength to make it to Mount Horeb which is the same thing as Mount Sinai, where Moses received all the laws of the people. So he received divine help. And as our tradition continues from that 10th century, basically, or the 9th century, which is this story that we have, 9th century BC, which is the story about Elijah, our understanding comes to us through everything that happened after Elijah, interpreted through Jesus, and then 21 centuries since Jesus. We still live in this enchanted world and this imminent world. But not everybody sees the world the same way. And that's what we're going to talk about at Oral Valley Catholic. How do you think of Joan of Arc? St. Joan of Arc, her feast was at the very end of May. And if you remember the story of Joan of Arc, she's just this young girl, about 16 years old. She's visited, she says, by the uh, Archangel Michael. She's visited by St. Catherine and St. Margaret. And she's told she is going to free France. So she goes to Roger de Badrecourt, 
uh, and she lives in enemy territory, but she finds this one loyalist for the French king who is fighting with the English, if you remember the story. And so she has to make this dangerous journey with uh, Roger de Baudricourt's knights to go and see the king. And then when she gets there, the king hides from her. But St. Michael reveals where he is, and she finds him and points him out. She tells him something that only he had said to God in prayer and died never revealing what Joan of Arc uh, told him. But he lived in an enchanted world. He lived in the medieval world. He believed in demons and goblins and the presence of God, angels and saints. This is always in this world. It's a world with disease and a world with war, but something more. What the Catholic philosopher, one of the greatest living philosophers, Charles Taylor, he's Canadian, calls the enchanted world, that the world is alive with the power of God. So he's open to Joan of Arc, and so he has her examined. He decides that she's believable. She gives her a horse. He gives her army. He puts her in, into the, in, with his army of Armagnacs and uh, French supporters of the, of the Dauphin. That's uh, the, the king that Joan wants to serve. And what does she do? She is absolutely drop-dead courageous. She's wounded at the walls of Orleans. But she is given the credit for the victory by her army. And then a series of victories after that. And then she leads the king to uh, Rouen, I guess, where he is crowned king of France. Or maybe it's Reims, but I think it's Rouen where, where he's crowned. And then she falls prey to the Burgundians who are in league with the English because the Burgundians are the con other contenders for the throne of France. The English also know she's been successful. The English also believe that she's part of this enchanted world, but they think she's a witch because she dresses like a man, probably to prevent being raped by, uh, by English soldiers. Uh, and so... Uh, you can read, so we know so much about Joan of Arc because we have her testimony at the trial that the English conducted and the trial conducted by the Pope at the insistence of her mom about 20 years later. She is a great saint and a challenge for modern belief. So she is burned. I think they have to burn her three times to get her down to ashes because the English don't want to leave anything of Joan of Arc. Shakespeare, 100 years later, claims she's a witch. Now nobody claims she's a witch. In fact, the English called on her in the First World War uh, to fight for the, uh, they're now allies, the French. Crazy how, how the world works. But it's the stories of the saints. Either they move you or you don't. Because what's at the heart of it is God's continuing work in the world. Does God work through St. John Henry Newman? St. Therese of Lisieux, the great St. John Vianney? Is God working through Mother Teresa of Calcutta and St. John Paul in something more than just a moral way? This is what the heart of the stories of the gospel today. And so let's take a moment and talk about the problems of American religion. In the Protestant Reformation, um, the reformers wanted to walk away from this enchanted world. So they said there's no such thing as, as miracles. That was one of the big things that came out of the Reformation. Catholics and the intercession of saints and miracles. We all know where we're at as a communion on that. But the Protestants resolutely 
reduced religion to basically the moral. Um, you see it even in C.S. Lewis, who is otherwise uh, uh, so thoughtful. And it's not that what they say is untrue. It's partly true. The idea that prayer changes you. Well, prayer does change you. But prayer does more than that. Prayer can bring a response where God intervenes on your behalf. Pentecostals believe this. They are part of the Reformation that has returned very much to the enchanted world. That's why Pentecostals are growing so fast around the world. They believe in faith healings. They believe in tongues. They live in a very enchanted world. How do you get away from it? But if you just take religion and you reduce it to the moral, or like the famous speaker Jordan Peterson, who apparently is not a Christian, but talks about the Bible, he reduces biblical stories to Jungian archetypes, that somehow Jung is a psychiatrist, that these are these great um, impulses running through humanity as a whole. Uh, if you know anything about the idea of the oversoul, uh, which is not a Christian idea, that's like a Jungian arch archetype. And so you can say about Jungian archetypes is, I as an individual don't have archetypes, archetypes have me. This is, this is uh, Jordan Peterson and this long tradition going back into uh, Neoplatonism, I think, basically, uh, about the idea of, uh, and beyond, uh, the idea of the, uh, of the great oversoul. But you know, this idea that we live in an enchanted world or we live in an imminent world, that we that live in an imminent world can either believe there's no enchantment or there is enchantment, but we're still stuck in this imminent world with gravity and all the forces of nature. And so as a Christian, what do you do with that? That's partly what this uh, podcast is about. Um, if you're ever interested in reading more about all of this, I really recommend James K.A. E. Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular, a reading of Charles Taylor. Because Charles Taylor wrote a book that'll take you like most of your life to read. But this is a very nice, trimmed down, easy to read introduction into these ideas. Why is it important? Because if we're gonna evangelize the world, we ought to know something about how people think that are not Catholic. And so to talk about imminence, to talk about transcendence, and as they say in England, mind the gap. And now let's turn to the scriptures. These walls will stay, they'll never change. Do you really want to solve that bellyache? Up, up the roof, stare, tear from this ground. If I made you a window, would you jump and so, in my own long-winded way, talking about the imminent and the transcendent, we all live in the imminent world. What separates us from the atheist is the atheists see the imminent world as like a big box machine we live in. At the end, we all end up being just compost. For Catholics, the imminent world points to a transcendent world. It is, the imminent world is the pathway we take to union with God. And so this comes from our biblical worldview, and it's based on the historicity of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We don't say Christianity is a better idea. I would say that. But that's not our claim to truth. 
God intervened in history. And so think about all of these, uh, these stories from the gospel today is about how God intervenes in history. So the first is from 1 Kings. And as I said, here's Elijah escaping Jezebel, the murderous uh, queen, and her weak husband Ahab. And a guardian angel sent by God comes to help Je uh, Elijah and feed him as he goes to meet God at Mount Horeb, which is the same place as Mount Sinai. Just two different names for, this, for the same reality. And there he sees God passing by. He sees God's backside. Uh, he, it, no, that's Moses. He hears God in this tiny little whisper, and he covers his face. And so God intervening in the world through an angel, God intervening in the world through this mystical experience of this tiny stillness that Elijah can hear. How about Ephesians? Ephesians is all about the church, and I preached about it a week or two ago. The idea of the church is this heavenly reality present in time. And so both of those things mean something, that it is about heaven. This is something God's willed since before the creation of the world. But there's also something very human about the church. It's what disappoints people about the church. But again, it's about transcendent. The church is as transcendent a reality as an angel is, both present in this imminent box we live in. And now we come to the gospel. And so John chapter 6, which is in some ways the core of how Jesus talks about divinity, it, talk, it starts with Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes and feeding people out in the wilderness. Then Jesus walks on water. And then this discourse, which comes to the gospel today and will end in, I think, the week after next, where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then it says, some stayed. Peter's saying, where else are we going to go? You have the words of everlasting life. Others say, this is all too much. They could believe he was a great moral teacher. They could believe that he might lead a successful revolution against Rome. They couldn't believe that he was the presence of God in the world. And so the reading from John today is at the crux of this moment. Remember last week where people said to Jesus, so what is the work of God? And Jesus says that the work of God is believing in the one whom God has sent. And then Jesus puts that together with, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. And especially in the gospel today, where he says, the Jews murmured about Jesus because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. So this is just picking up from last week. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? How can he say he came down from heaven? Um, and we've heard this in Mark in the synagogue in Nazareth. People can't get past the fact that this guy is a human being, the divine and the human, the transcendent and the imminent. Are you seeing it? Because this is at the heart of the gospel. And so here's what Jesus says. Number one, which he consistently says through all the gospels, I am the response to the prophecy. And so Isaiah prophesied that everyone would be taught by God himself. So here's what Jesus says. Stop murmuring amongst yourselves. Remember the biggest thing I say about what the, what the Jewish and Christian people do? They murmur and they grumble. So I'll quit your grumbling. God says this to the people in the desert. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. The primacy of grace about believing. You can't understand who Jesus is or the Eucharist unless you have the grace, according to John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. It's written in the prophets. They shall all be taught by God. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah. And everyone who listens to my Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So we're going to talk about the creed in a minute, because the eye, the understanding of revelation is that when we see Jesus' faith, we see the face of God. And so you have to see that. Fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus is the face of God in the world. And then he says this. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of, bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So we Catholics, we know this. Let me ask you this. Do people believe in Jesus because they believe in the Eucharist, or do they believe in the Eucharist because they believe in Jesus? Gospel of John says, believe in Jesus, and that will bring you to belief in the Eucharist. And what Jesus says, and he's using it manna, now is a metaphor for the incarnation, that I'm the manna, bread, coming into the imminent frame. And if you eat this, it will take you to the transcendent frame. Boom! John chapter 6. And so, do you believe it? Because a lot of people don't. Increasingly, apparently, Catholics don't. But if you don't believe that God's active in the world, he sends an angel to Elijah, that you have a guardian angel according to Jesus that you ought to pray to, especially in protection against the powers of evil. Do you believe that there are evil spirits out there that want to consume you from the inside out? You would run space upstairs in your brain and they corrupt you completely from the inside out. Can you accept that that's really the something that's running through all the problems of humanity? Not just the imminent problems that human beings are selfish, but there's some problems from another sphere that are causing us problems. Think about it in terms of the Nicene Creed. So if we go to the Nicene Creed, which you say every time you come to Sunday Mass, when it comes to you talk about God the Father, and then it turns to the Son, and we'll just walk through it so you think about it what you say at Mass. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. Jesus is is a human being like us, but he also pre-exists. We did not pre-exist. We did not exist before the moment our mom and dad made us in your, your mom's womb. That God gives us our soul, that we're a spirit, and that spirit comes from God, but it's a created spirit, not an eternal spirit. We are not made to be God, but God can bring us up through baptism and rebirth into a participation in the divine. And this is the part I always like, and it has great meaning for me. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. How do we see the world rightly? God gives us light. And so Jesus is God shining a light in the world. Remember the first thing that God made on the first day of creation? Let there be light, wisdom. 
Jesus is this wisdom present in the world. And then true God from true God. Jesus is not an edited version of God. When you see the love, the sacrifice, God, Jesus' service to us, this is the image of how God is love and how why he called us the night before he died that to be great, we're supposed to serve. That's how we participate in the transcendent reality of God's love. And then uh, Jesus is not only a creature. He's begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. This transcendent part that he is what God is. But the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three gods, three persons, but one God is how we say it. Why is he here? For us men and for our salvation. Salus, that's health. For us men and for us to receive salus, healing, he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Though he preexisted, he took his humanity from the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's why we'll be celebrating the Assumption next weekend. And then, this is not a myth. For his sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is an actual historical figure, just like Jesus is an historical figure. There's something cheesy about atheists who have to claim that Jesus never really existed. Ridiculous. You gotta deal with him. He's either God or he's not. Everybody has to make the choice. But Pontius Pilate is the guy that put the nails in his hands and his feet. And then Jesus suffered death just like you and I do. He lived in this transcendent realm and paid the penalty. But he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures because the imminent frame, our reality, is not just a big composting machine. Then he ascended into heaven. There is a way out, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. It's that last part, which is, I think, why people are really uh, uncomfortable with Jesus that someone else is going to judge you and me, that we can't take God for granted, that there is accountability, even though we live in an imminent world where apparently you can get away with whatever you want. So let's take a moment and talk about why this has a huge effect on how you live our life. Because whether you live in a box, it's a composting machine, or in a box that transcends, the issue is how do you choose to live? And that's St. Paul and the Ephesians, why it is that we avoid sin and why we live a life of virtue so we can stay open to God. So stay, stay tuned for the exciting conclusion to Oro Valley Catholic. Take my chances, cut my losses, Here's something to think about, and it's it's just one way of how you live. Uh, if you live in an imminent box, you know, we all have this idea, okay, so atheism's pretty grim. But what about atheists or agnostics or nuns who long for something more? Atheists, just like Christians, are not one size fit all. There's people that 
think there's something more, but they convince themselves that there's no way of understanding. That was Frederick Nietzsche, the idea of Nietzsche, the idea that you can't really know. You're out on an ocean, it's an overcast day, there's no stars, there's nothing to steer by. You just make it up for yourself. That's Nietzsche. Actually, uh, he came to all that by reading the American Ralph Waldo Emerson. So all this atheism, this Emersonianism coming home, the New England transcendentalist. They gave us the Puritans and they gave us Emerson. It's the problem of uh, inadequate religion. So the transcendent part of this is how it is that you think about the world that you live in. So here's something that's a really great way of thinking about language and how you think about language. There is one way of thinking about language and it's called univocal or univocal, that language only designates what you see. You can say uh, a well makes a sound and the sound doesn't mean anything. That's the entire thing of what a well is. You throw a rock in it and you hear it go bang. That's, that's a well, you hear it go splash. That's what a well is. That's all a well is. Or you hear a bird and it flies by and you hear its song. That's what a bird is. That's univocal language. It doesn't mean anything more than. It's like, I'm just a human being. That's all I am. At the end, compost me and throw me out onto the peach tree. But that's not the Catholic way of thinking about language. We have language that's resonant, and this is why poetry has been so huge in reality, uh, in, in human culture. Poetry goes back to before writing. We know that because things like the Iliad and the Odyssey were first memorized before they were put into writing. That's why they say Homer may have written them in the 8th century, but all of this goes back much further, like three or four centuries before him. So generation after generation passes it on. Why? because it has resonance about who the gods are, what it means to be a hero. Catholic poetry, Dante, which is, a, uh, his Divine Comedy is an amazing poem to read through. Um, you never stop reading it. You can just enjoy it. The language in poetry has resonance. A language in poetry is bigger than. So for instance, you have a poem. We're going, they say, to the end of the world, the end of the world by Dana Joya. We're going, they say, to the end of the world. So we stopped the car where the river curled. We scrambled down beneath the bridge on a narrow track on a gravel ridge. Well, the idea is, boy, you hear about a narrow track and it's a pathway. Okay, this sounds like something like we're going to God. You know, we're going someplace. Pathways are always spiritual symbols. That's using something that is just like this dirt track but it resonates, there's more to it. It's analogous. People are made for analogous language. Modern music works on nothing but analogous language. Here's a great example from Jared Manley Hopkins, and it's a poem you probably all heard called Pied Beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter 
original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth, whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Now, if you live in just an imminent world, well, is this just a guy looking at different colors in the world? What the heck does this have to do with fantasies or fairies named God? I mean, how does this point to us, a flying spaghetti monster? But in an enchanted world where you're open that everything points to something else, that you're on a pathway, and then glory be to God for dappled things, because all the beauty in the world points someplace. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. And in between is just a description of the imminent world. So here we are, my friends. We are evangelists of transcendence. What does it mean to convert? Well, conversion may just be that you think there's something more. Conversion might lead you to understand that the Jesus who talks about himself and says that the work of God is believing in the one he sent might actually lead you to the Eucharist and this pathway out of the big composting machine called the imminent world. But conversion can also mean we just want to go back to the Middle Ages. Or conversion might be that religion's really useful to a nationalistic view of our government, and so we can just reduce uh, religion as something that helps us make this world better. Uh, some, I think, twisted versions of the social gospel. But here's an important thing, and I said it early on, and I'd ask you if you're gonna take anything out of this Royal Valley Catholic, is this. The transcendent world and the imminent world are not the same thing. There is a gap, I would say an abyss. You cannot cross it on your own. You just can't get there by yourself. You need help. In England, when you're gonna get on the train, they have signs that say, mind the gap. And when you think about bringing heaven to earth, well, that's what they tried to do with communism and they, they were gonna make everybody this classless society and they were gonna end all human problems and it ended up being hell. Hitler wanted to make everybody just like Aryans. Aryans, he was gonna do that by killing anybody who wasn't because if you could kill people that weren't Aryans, you're gonna make a happier world. Again, it's just hell. There is this gap, this abyss between the imminent and the transcendent world. Why is Jesus essential to salvation? He is the bridge, as another saint, St. Catherine of Siena says. He's the bridge from this side to the other. Praise him. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. This has been Father John Arnold. And if you like this podcast, um, repost it. Send it to a friend. Uh, share it on your Facebook page. You know, I got to tell you, in the 88 episodes that I've been doing, I've had almost 10,000 listens from Europe, Asia, and other places because people repost. If you think it's worthwhile, just hit share or repost. And maybe you've done something for an evangelization. Maybe you've done something to help build that bridge between this world and the one to come. 
God bless you. Say your prayers.